things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Last week, we began looking at this last part of Mark chapter 13, which for us has been this mini-series within the the greater Mark series of of Who is Jesus, where we've spent a great deal of time listening in to Jesus teaching his disciples about what life will look like in the last days. This is now our fourth week in chapter 13, and this morning we'll finish this section uh, before next week moving into the very last days of Christ's life. Last week's sermon we began by saying... We can oftentimes fall into ruts in our Christian lives where we are simply going through the motions, simply living out of habits or routineness instead of living in the moment. This is no different than other aspects of your lives. I mean, how many of you when uh, have ever gone and sat down and uh, through the laborious, painstaking process of planning what you're going to have for dinner? Perhaps there you are sitting out, uh, laying out what you will cook and therefore what you need to buy over the next week, and, and you find yourself thinking of only the same four or five meals. Many examples in life where we make decisions that are more passive than active. When trying to complete a task, perhaps a mundane task even, we rely on a, a solution that is, we've done this before, we kind of know how it works, so we'll just go on autopilot and kind of turn our brains off. Requires very little complex thinking or solutioning on our part. Now, this isn't always a bad thing, right? There are areas of our lives that we should become uh, in in such a routine and such a habit that we can quite literally do them while half asleep. uh, Half asleep. Something like as routine and as mundane as standing in front of the sink every morning and brushing your teeth. You probably don't need to spend a great deal of thought or mental capacity as you stand there in the sink and think to yourself the intricacies of cleaning your teeth. I should come on autopilot. This should be routine. This is what I teach my children when they wake up. Brush brush your teeth. When you go to bed, brush your teeth. I want them to do it without thinking, right? Autopilot is not always a bad idea. But when it comes to the grand scheme of our lives and to our faith, brothers and sisters, we should fight the urge to slip into autopilot slip into complacency. We should realize that one of the schemes of the devil is to lull us to sleep. There's a type of militancy to the Christian life that is part and parcel. And I think Jesus is alluding to that type of confrontational mentality living here in this passage. This morning the title of the sermon is Living in Light of His Return. In our text this morning, Jesus is landing the plane that lifted off in verse 5. After the disciples asked Jesus to tell them, uh, when is all these things going to be? They walk out of the temple, they say, Jesus, look, isn't the temple wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? Jesus says, "Uh, not one stone will be left upon another. 
Of course, his disciples want to know, well, when will this be? How will we know when is here? And Jesus' first answer was that they should not be led astray. In verse 5. Rather that they should be on guard. Militant lifestyle. And his concluding comments in this chapter here, he is giving his disciples basic instructions that are meant to help them live in the present. As we looked at last week in verses 24 through 27, Jesus is indeed, friends, coming back. Spend just a moment here with me looking at verse 26 and 27. And And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Dear Christian, Jesus is coming back. He'll be coming in the clouds with with great power and glory, which is a symbol of his great rule and reign. Our king has all the power and has never once worried about being voted out of his throne. Our king has all the power and there is no army which could overthrow him. Our king has all the power and he has never once used that power to do evil to us. In fact, the scriptures are quite clear on the opposite being the case, that he will use all of his power to make sure that both the good things and the evil things in your life are working together for your good, to mold you into the perfect image of his son. You see, we should have confidence in this truth, that that our king is indeed coming back. This actively changes then how we think about our day-to-day life in the present. This morning I want to lay before you three ways of, in which knowing that Christ is coming back in the future actually changes and helps us to live in the present. The first way, knowing that Christ is coming in the future helps us live in the present, is by helping us live without worry. Living without worries. Look at verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. You see, coming out of his discussion of verses 24 to 27, Jesus uses an illustration here to drive drive his point home with the disciples. You see, in verses 24 to 27, Jesus spoke about the cosmic events which would signal the end of the world. And then he moves into this very practical illustration of the seasons, right, and the fig tree, and kind of seeing the signs of the fig tree and where the branch of the fig tree uh, goes through its certain seasons. And this is how you're able to know the summer is, like when, when the summer is near, right? This, uh, to, just to put this in the local context of central Ohio here, this would be uh, akin to Jesus saying, well, you know, when the corn gets about eight feet tall and the little tassels on the end of the corn turn dark brown, uh, you know that harvest is near. Harvest is near. You know that harvest season is upon you. And this is the illustration Jesus uses to make his point. But what point is he making? Look at verse 29. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. When you see these things taking place, what is Jesus referring to here? He's referring to everything from verses 5 through verse 23, which is, which is what? What's well, false teaching, wars and rumors of wars, Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines, persecutions, trials, being delivered to death by family, being hated by all, the the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to, and it's great tribulation. So Jesus is saying, by way of the fig tree, 
When you see these things happening, this should lead you to knowing something. Which is what? The implication of reading the signs of the fig tree are so that you know summer is near. The signs of, of reading the corn is so that you know when harvest season is here. The signs of verses 5 through 23 then are the signs which should lead us to the implication then that Jesus is near. Jesus is near. Jesus being near here is referring to the spaces between verses 23 and verse 24. So in verse 23 is the end of the signs. In verse 24 is what happens after all the signs have taken place. Namely, Jesus' cosmic rescue mission for his elect. But then verse 29 here, where it references his being near, is before his actually appearing. Are you with me? So so then Jesus' point here in using the fig tree is to once again drive home the answer to the disciples' original question of knowing when all these things would take place. The implication for us today then becomes clearer when we understand what Jesus intended his hearers to hear what he was actually saying. Was Jesus, in fact, saying the end of all the things will be like this, so make sure you watch out for them so that you can pinpoint with exact specificity when the end of the world will be? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, no. Well, then why did Jesus answer the question in this way? Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today that Jesus answered the question in this way so that His disciples would live worry-free. Live worry-free. Think about it. Tribulation. Being hated by all. Being put to death for the name of Christ. All of these things would have caused the early church to stop and consider, is this real? Is it worth it? Should we endure all of these things for Christ's name? Is there another way in which we can outwork social justice in the world but not attach Christ's name to it, thereby escaping all of this suffering? Jesus is saying here, when you are being put to death because you will not recant your faith in me, I want you to know something, brothers and sisters. I want you to know I'm here. I'm near. I'm at the very gate. I have not abandoned you. I have not forgotten about you. I see you. I know what you are going through. These signs are not a sign of my wrath, but rather they are a sign that I am near. The end is close. Jesus' point in all of this should change the way that we actually live today. This should change our understanding of how we ought to live today. You see, it's a move from worry to peace, from anxiety to balance, from depression to exuberance, from doubt to faith. The way, the first way knowing that Christ is coming in the future helps us live in the present is by helping us live without worries. Grandma and grandpa in the room, do not fret. The future of your grandchildren, for Christ is near. Mother, father, do not be driven to anxiety about what might or might not happen to your job and to your livelihood in a downtrending market for Christ is near. Young person, do not worry what might happen if you tell others about your faith because Christ is near. Since Jesus is coming back, we can then live without worry. The second way knowing that Christ is coming in the future helps us to live differently in the present is by helping us live without idols. 
living without idols. Look at verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now verse 30 creates for scholars and, uh, and theologians uh, this theological conundrum. Because here Jesus seems to time box himself, doesn't he? This verse is used by some uh, outside of the faith to actually point to Jesus as a fraud. Because they've interpreted what Jesus said here as uh, the end of the world will be in this one generation. The end of all things would take place within a single generation. The idea of a generation here in Jesus' mind is the same as you and I would have. A generation somewhere between 40 to 60 years. But this apparent theological conundrum is resolved when we have a proper understanding of what Jesus is actually referencing here. You see, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus is pointing his disciples back to the coming tribulations and persecution, verses 5 through 23. But he's not pointing them back to verses 24 to 27, where he's speaking about his final coming. So then what is Jesus saying in verse 30? He's saying some of the people of his generation... Some of the disciples who would have been listening to Jesus teach. Some of these people would not pass away until all these things started taking place. The interpretation behind that then is that we have been in the season of Christ's nearness for a while now. Since the starting of the church, we have been in the season of persecution and tribulation. But notice verse 31. Here Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus throws this thought on here, where he grounds everything that he set up until this point into a greater reality than what the disciples can actually see around them. He says, everything you see, everything that you can touch, everything that you can taste, everything that you hear, all of those things will pass away. But his words... His words are more secure than that. He's saying that his words, his, his promises are more secure than the physical world. This, is, this should be mind-blowing to us. That the promises of Jesus are more secure than the chair in which you sit, brothers and sisters. Mind-blowing. The Greek word here Jesus uses for passing away, this generation will not pass away, heaven and earth will pass away, his words will not pass away, it's the same word used in the, Old the Greek Old Testament in Psalm 148. Let me just read it to you. You just listen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever he gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise him for all, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. You see, the psalmist here, 
gives his readers this command. He repeats it over and over. I don't know if you picked up on it. The command to praise the Lord. He also gave him a command uh, not only to the people, but to all the created order to praise the Lord. But it's verse 6 in this psalm which caught my attention where it says, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. The psalmist is saying that the heavens and the earth were created because God gave a decree. Or said another way, the psalmist is saying that the heavens and the earth were created because God spoke a word. And his word would not pass away. And this is the reason for which psalmist then calls on the people in all the created world to actually praise the Lord. So then what is Jesus doing when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away? Is he's putting his words on par with God's words. He's putting his words on par with that of the creator because he is the creator. He is God in the flesh. And he says, the physical, created world, everything that they can see would pass away, right? We know this to be true from the other New Testament scriptures, right, which speak of, uh, I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down from heaven above, right? The rest of the scriptures kind of speak of that at the end of time, God's going to blow it all away and recreate it fresh, pure. But his words would not pass away. This should cause us to pause to take inventory of our own lives. Have we made an idol out of anything? Have we made an idol out of food? Content to simply fill our bellies and not give God the praise for it. Have we made an idol out of our families? Worried sick about the fate of our children without understanding the providence of our God. Have we created idols out of our jobs and out of our money? Constantly worrying, especially these days, of how we might make ends meet. I'm not saying we shouldn't think about these things, brothers and sisters. What I am saying is that because Christ is coming back, we can live with a worry-freeness, but we can also live without creating idols out of anything. Because at the end of the day, the heavens and the earth will pass away when Christ comes again. The second way that knowing that Christ is coming in the future helps us to live in the present is by helping us live without idols, with living with open hands. The third and final way that knowing Christ is coming in the future helps us to live in the present is by helping us to live with holy significance. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. And he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You see, Jesus is clearly here speaking of his coming again. He plainly states that no one knows when this will happen. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son except the Father. Right? If we're honest, it's reading this, this phrase, nor the Son, that kind of gives us 
Paul's, right? As Orthodox, Bible-believing Christians, we affirm the full and undiminished deity of God the Son, like that Jesus was God in the flesh. As God, he possesses all the attributes of deity, including his omniscience, right? He knows all things. And yet here, he clearly states that there's this body of knowledge which he's unsure of, dare I say, ignorant of, the day and hour of his own second coming. This statement makes no sense apart from the incarnation, right? In taking on human nature and entering into the time-space reality which Jesus stepped foot into, the Son of God did not surrender his deity. But he did lay aside his glory. And in so doing, our Lord, for a time, relinquished the free exercise of his divine attributes, such as omniscience. In the mystery and beauty of the incarnation, the all-knowing, sovereign Son could temporarily lay aside or suspend part of what it meant to be God, knowing all things, so that he might live an authentic human life in submission to his Father and in dependence on the Holy Spirit. So this also explains why Jesus, our Lord, could be hungry, could experience thirst, could grow tired, and why we can say things like, God actually died. Here lies another in, indictment, right? Because Jesus is not here thinking of uh, date setting and prophetic speculation. Because here Jesus says no one knows. No one knows but God. We may not know when Jesus will return. However, we do know what we should be doing until he comes. Look what he says. He says, watch. Be alert. Why? Because you don't know when he's coming. That's his point. He says, like a man on a journey, our Lord has left the house, but only for a while. We, his servants, have been put in charge with a task to proclaim, the na- to, proclaim to the nation the gospel. From verse 10, we have our work to cut out for us. And so Jesus' point is be faithful, be ready, be alert. This is kind of where he lands the plane with his disciples on. He just says, just be ready, be on alert, be on guard. Paul picks this up. Pick, flip over to 1 Thessalonians for me. Because Paul picks this idea up, and some of the other New Testament writers, 1 Peter talks about this a good bit. This idea of, of being alert, right? Jesus doesn't dive into it, at least not in the Gospel of Mark here, around like, what exactly does this look like? What does it mean? Just simply that there is something for us to be Doing, but Paul kind of runs with this idea. First Thessalonians chapter five. <clears throat> Paul says this in verse one. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as, brothers, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober." having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The apostle here picks up, and he's like, you can sense that what he's saying here is birthed out of Mark chapter 13. He's explaining that for us, there is no need to be alarmed by the prospect of the Lord's coming. And he says this because, because we won't be taken by surprise. Right? Surprise here is the key word in Paul, Paul's argument. There are two reasons Paul mentions people are taken by surprise when a burglar breaks in. The first is that he comes in unexpectedly during the night. And the second is that the householder is asleep when he, when he comes in to steal your stuff. And Paul says we can do nothing about the first reason here, but we can about the second. Similarly, Christ's coming is definitely going to be unexpected. The solution then for our problem lies not in knowing when he will come, but rather simply staying awake and staying alert. For even if his coming is totally unexpected, we will be ready for him and not taken by surprise. But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Right? Paul's argument is about day and night, light and darkness. Burglars take people by surprise because they come at night. And so to begin with, it's dark so that we do not see them coming. In addition, most people are fast asleep. For If they awake, they're probably out partying or maybe even drunk. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So darkness then, sleep and drunkenness, are the three reasons why people are unprepared at night for a visit by a burglar. If only he would oblige us by coming in the daytime, then, then we would be ready for him. It would be light and we could see. We would ourselves be wide awake and we would be alert and sober. So it is with the coming of Christ. Will he come in the darkness or in the light? Spiritually speaking, will Jesus come at nighttime or at daytime? The answer to this question is both. According to Paul's argument, it depends on who you are. In the case of unbelievers, Jesus will come in the night because they belong to the night and live in the darkness. That's why Paul says, but you brothers, you are not in the darkness. You are all the sons of the light, the sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. The truth, right, this needs a little bit further elaboration. The Bible divides history into two ages. From the Old Testament perspective, they were called the present age, which was evil in the age to come, which would be the time of the Messiah. Moreover, the two ages were sometimes portrayed in terms of the night, in terms of the day. The present age was like a long, dark night. Like a night that didn't and would not end. But when the Messiah would come, the sun would rise, the day would break, and the world would be flooded with light. And the Bible teaches that Christ is that long-awaited Messiah. And that because of the person and work of Christ, the new age has indeed dawned. The night is over. He's ushered in the new day. He proclaimed the break-in of the kingdom of God. At the same time, the old age has not yet come to an end. As John puts it, the darkness is passing away and True light is already shining. So for the time being, the two ages overlap. Unbelievers, 
belong to the old age and are still in the darkness, but those who belong to Christ have been transferred into the new age, into the light. Already in Christ, we have tasted the powers of the coming age. Already God has brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Only when Christ comes in glory will the present overlap then end. The transition period will be over. The old day will finally vanish and those who belong to it will be destroyed. The new age will be consummated. And those who belong to it will be fully and finally redeemed. Right? Those of us who are in Christ, we, we, we know what this means, right? Like, like we, we know what it means to be made a new creation. Like those of us who are in Christ, we, like the, Paul, the, the scriptures would say that we're, he literally creates us as new people. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, don't we all still struggle? Don't we all still have sins? Would we seem to not be able to just get rid of? This is what it means to live in the overlap of the ages. And so we still long for the day when he will come and make all things brand new. Paul here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 declares, this way, but you are the children of the light. You are of the day. You are not of the darkness. You are not in darkness. And so this is what he says here, right? He says, so stay awake, be sober, be vigilant. In other words, what Paul is saying here is live with holy significance. Live with, live with the right understanding of knowing who you are in Christ and then walk it out in all aspects of your life. Peter would add in a similar uh, first, first Peter, he would add that, that we are to kill sin in our lives. Right? So, 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 so understand. Because Jesus is coming in does not mean we live as if our lives have no significance. We don't live as like, well, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Rather, we live as children of the light in a present world of darkness. What this means for us then is that our lives are not of little value, but rather that our lives of, are of significant value. The choices you make, the decisions that you make matter. It's not a little thing. To be made in the image of God. You matter. What this means then for us is that our lives are freed up. We, we live without worries, brothers and sisters. We live without worries. And I realize that's a hard thing to do in this day and age, and yet Christ is saying, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm coming again. That's why you would say, cast all your cares and anxieties on him, for he cares for you. We live without worries and we live with open hands and without idols in our lives. And we live as if every choice we make has significance because it does. Because it does. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward and we're going to, we're going to take communion, remind ourselves once more of Christ's finished work. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We are undeserving of this, and yet you've called us in into this. So, Father, I, I pray that you would press into our hearts by the Holy Spirit areas of our lives where we uh, are unwilling 
to lay our worry and our anxiety on you. To pray you would show us areas where our hearts have made idols out of other things besides you. And I pray that any area of our life where we have uh, thought mundane or unvaluable, you would redeem that in our lives. We would live with holy anticipation. We would live with holy righteousness. And we would live with holy significance in all things. Father, we pray you help us today. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Now I'm going to ask uh, 